Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Faith. So Faith, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you could describe to me what it was like, where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. I would be happy and to explore that with you, Tim. Thank you so much. I guess if we're going that welcome. far back, um, my birthday is actually coming up. I was born in February in 1968, the first part of a matching set. And we were born in Whitehorse, Yukon, Canada. So up in the North country, my father was uh, stationed there as um, he was in the Air Force, in the Canadian Air Force. And a prospector then. Yeah, yeah, not a prospector. No. (laughs) Did you do that in his spare time? (laughs) That's right. From Whitehorse, we uh, he transferred with the whole family. So we are the second and the third kids of um, of a three kind of three. But there's three siblings. So my there's my brother and my twin sister. And we moved to Manitoba to a place called Shiloh, which is a Canadian Forces base just outside of Brandon, Manitoba. And that's where my dad decided that um, the the services were being blended. And he didn't want to spend the rest of his life kind of leaving the Air Force and living in a trench (laughs) and doing those kinds of army camp activities. So he started applying for new roles and he got on with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police as a telecommunications officer. And he took a full time position with the RCMP, which is our federal policing in Canada. And he took a job with them in Brandon. And that's kind of where I grew up in, in a prairie town uh, surrounded by wheat fields and just the most gorgeous scenery and lakes everywhere. They call it the, the province of the lakes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a, as a twin in a time when, when, you know, twins weren't as common, you know, there wasn't that um, the amount of of fertility drugs that are now kind of populating the multiple births. So we were uh, identical twins, mirror image, uh, which also means that our personalities are slightly different as well. And we we went to school together all the time. So we were our own best friends. (laughs) So I guess guess you played tricks on lots of people. We played tricks on a lot of people. (laughs) Almost impossible to tell apart. Uh, Once you got to know us, obviously our personalities are a bit different. And uh, so I I would say that I'm a bit of the the risk taker, or the courageous one of the two of us. And, um, you know, even in the womb, I probably said to my sister, hey, I think there's a mother. Give us a few minutes. And then if I'm not back in five minutes, follow me. You know, (laughs) And she uh, she's always been the cautious one. And she she took another hour to join me. And, you know, into the school system, we went in a public public school system and walked the halls kind of stressing people out with, with this, you know, <laughs> ability to just interchange classes. And I remember, you know, when we were in the same class, we we somewhat dressed alike and we certainly spent all our time together. And later on, they decided that should split us apart because we would make friends if 
if, you know, we were not in the same class, which I think was just a recipe for disaster, quite frankly, because that was the mm. moment I realized I wasn't that fond of math and she wasn't that fond of phys ed. So, so I was able to do all of the phys ed classes and she could take all of my math classes, which seemed like such a great idea at the time until she quit school in in uh, at age 16 and I was going to carry on and now I have to catch everything up. So, mm. so let that be a lesson <laughs> to you. There might be some things that you, you know, you can get away with, but usually the consequences come back to bite us. And, you know, I, I remember kind of growing up and just being a really tight family. I mean, we, we camped a lot as a family in a tent trailer and we were out and about, you know, drinking powdered skim milk and spam in a can and all of those, you know, <laughs> crazy um, lifestyle things. But but my dad and my mom were, were such a great role models and they really believed in family. And so every holiday was spent, you know, driving hours and hours and hours with a tent trailer behind us and praying that it wouldn't rain and we'd have to set the canvas trailer up in the rain and... <laughs> And my dad reminding us that we could, we could have it worse. We could be sleeping on the ground. So, you know, they've, they've yeah. got this really great, um, you know, very family oriented. We spent summers with grandparents and lots of cousins. My dad came from a large family, uh, also mm -hmm. a prairie family, but in Saskatchewan, one province over. But being only one province, you're able to spend a lot of time as cousins living together. Yeah. So, you know, you start to have this really big team environment around you all the time mm -hmm. where, where, you know, I number one, being born part of a team. <laughs> I don't know how to not be part of <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, adding the cousins into the mix is is always kind of a real fun. I can remember, you know, the the one grandfather is actually from England as well. And he uh, he believed he was an orphan his entire childhood. His dad told him he was an orphan. There was no one else, which wasn't entirely true. I think, you know, some of us spin mm -hmm. our own stories. And so he always wanted to be surrounded by by family. And so he used to, you know, put on these these retreats or get togethers when we were kids and we're, you know, fielding two teams. There was that many cousins and he just <laughs> loved having, you know, baseball team oriented people around and just kind mm. of just really playful and teaching us about having a sense of humor and never letting the things um, that stress us out, I think, from day to day, get under your skin. I mean, my grandfather was this, this, you know, a very tall, um, stoic man who, you know, he, he, he was trying to create a living during the dirty thirties. I mean, he just, mm. it was not an easy existence. And he said, you know, you, you were expected to have the farm or go to war. And so he had a farm. And so he used to, used to say, you know, if you, if you can't laugh at what life's throwing at you, then, then, you know, you, you're going to have some serious <laughs> problems along the way. And, and my mom's mom on the other side, she just turned 101. And I remember when she was in her seventies and eighties, kind of telling us her, her, my grandfather actually died when I was 11. So she's been alone a really long time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I remember her saying when, when you grow old, just make sure that you're, you're not one of those people who complains about everything. No one wants to talk to a complainer. So just you know, <laughs> those really great role models in life that remind us to just not take ourselves so seriously and then also be generous with praise and generous with joy and generous with gratitude and that good things in life just continually come back to you.
So, you know, there I was um, in, in high school feeling very alone when my twin sister left. You know, I was mm. 16 years old and what am I going to do now? And I what had this did she well, she, she found a man and she kind of decided she wanted to do that instead for a while. Oh. She, <laughs> she was very rebellious at that stage. And, <laughs> so, and I think, you know, I think always being under the microscope as, as a twin is a bit hard on you at times. You know, you're not mm. your own identity. I, I mean, I can remember, I think I was probably in fourth grade before I realized my name wasn't Faith and Fern. It was just faith. <laughs> we used to run them together. So it, it's much, or, you know, the girls, where are the girls? Yeah. You never really have your own identity. So in, at 16, I, I had this opportunity to go to glider camp and uh, with, with the reserves. And I was going to just learn to be a glider pilot, you know, and I thought, well, that'll be super fun again, back to risk taking. And, you know, uh, it, it should be just filled with opportunity. And so I went to Gimli, Manitoba, which is just outside of Winnipeg, which is the capital of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And I spent a summer in the heat running on, on a dirt track, you know, chasing gliders, <laughs> and learning to be a pilot and uh, fell in love with my first love. I, and, you know, we're coming up on Valentine's day here in North America. So, you know, we're talking to all things love these days. And you have to wonder how many of us remember our first loves and mm-hmm. here was this, you know, amazing <clears throat> glider pilot um, that was going to teach me. And he was tall and dark and handsome and much older than me. And uh, he was a bit smitten with me. So, you know, we ended up forging this relationship. And, you know, I graduated high school and I was in college um, and I was taking my medical secretary because my mom figured, you know, you should do something you can lean back on. Should I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't know how many years I wanted to spend in post-secondary. And so both my parents are very practical, very pragmatic people. And they said, no matter what you do, you're going to need to learn to type. So, so like, <laughs> go get a secretary's and you'll always be employable. And it's funny, you know, they gave that advice. And I thought I wanted to go to fire college. You know, I was going to go be a firefighter. And they said, well, it's lots of night shifts and you know, you might not love it. <laughs> okay, I'll be a secretary. <laughs> and yeah, so, I, <laughs> so did you graduate as a secretary? I did, yeah. And uh, I, I started in a clinic for a whopping $6 an hour back in the day. And uh, it was my full-time job. And I was working day shift, which I was told was going to be amazing. And I've often looked back and thought if I'd have been a firefighter, I might've started at 20 bucks an hour. It's like (laughs) a bit of a stark contrast, but um, yeah. And then, then, you know, I, uh, my pilot boyfriend kept flying back to come and visit me and finally convinced me I should move with him across the prairies to the, um, to the east side of the Rocky Mountains into Alberta. And I was such an exciting time. You know, I'd never really traveled anywhere. I, you know, grew up in a tent trailer. And here's this Mm -hmm. very wealthy oil man who was going to take me to five-star hotels and restaurants. And I was going to live this life that I just really dreamed of becoming accustomed to. (laughs) And, and, you know, so it's an interesting time. And then we had, you know, we had some kids together. And then I realized that uh, one day I came home and found him in bed with his secretary and realized Mm -hmm. even being born a twin, I I don't like to share that much. 
So um, <laughs> I started over. <laughs> so, so did you get your pilot's license? I did get my glider pilot's license and I started to do my small engine license, this, you know, assess, learn to fly a Cessna. Yeah. But obviously, you know, when that relationship kind of came apart, that ended as well. So mm-hmm. I you know, was a single mom trying to trying to figure out how to raise three kids all by myself and um, and start over, you know, and, you know, you just think about where you end up in life, the choices you make. And, you know, is there is there this opportunity to go back for a I'm going to use a golf metaphor. Can I go back and take a mulligan? You know, can I can I do a <laughs> do over on this? Because. I'd like to make some different choices. I would go to fire college. And I, would, you know, I, would, I would just maybe take a different lane. I'd, yeah. I mean, know, did you ever have to fall back on your secretarial training? Oh, my gosh. You know, my parents were so right. Don't you hate admitting that? It's like, <laughs> Sometimes our parents are so right. Um, I have used it more than I will ever use probably anything else that I could have taken training in. And it didn't really matter that I had a medical um, focus in that. Just, just the skill of being able to take minutes and, and um, yeah. you know, being able to, to be able to, so now as a writer, you know, being able to keyboard effectively and to, mm-hmm. to know how to edit your material and, and just the, the skill set that you learn you know, in this, in this program. And, you know, it it was a year long program. I think people are doing them now in 16 weeks, but I mean, I I studied for a whole year to, to get this designation and I use it with everything. Who knew we'd go virtual in our lives, you know, back then that that wasn't a thing. I mean, traditional typewriter, I mean, and you had the carbon paper you know and if you made a mistake yeah. it was always at the bottom and you had to yeah. start over <laughs> crazy and times that shorthand can you can oh you yes shorthand? faulkner shorthand and in fact you know um i had go- I'd secured myself a job in in a hospital working as a clerk and and then i took a part-time job i had these three kids and i was trying to you know buy a house and really prove that I could do it on my own. And I remember um, taking up a part-time gig, taking the minutes for the municipal council. So for all of their night meetings, I would go in and I would take the minutes. And then in my, on my breaks during my daytime, my day job, I would literally type up these minutes and get them sent back so that I was able to earn, you know, the income from both places and try to get ourselves to a place where we had a foothold and we, you know, we could get a house mm. and we could have a life <laughs> potentially with furniture and some food on the table <laughs> and uh, you know, all those important things. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I've used it extensively. And even now, you know, I, I belong to um, I've always belonged to a lot of service clubs and right now I belong to Rotary International here in the Okanagan. And it's such it's such a wonderful place, but I find myself by default writing agendas and taking minutes because <laughs> you know meetings just go on way too long, and somebody has to you know herd the cats a little bit. So yeah, yeah, it's, I, I, I would always say, a need for a secretary. <laughs> always, and so, you know exactly what they said, right? You can always fall back yeah. on those skills. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's move on a little bit. So. You moved to to the to the west coast. You, you had three quids, and you, you, your marriage fell apart. What was what was the first job you had when you 
when you left college? You know, I, as I said, when I left college, I, I got on with a clinic. And um, so a medical clinic. And that was my first job. And they were wonderful people there. I mean, but it was back in the day of carbon paper. And our medical mm-hmm. files were very long, you know, and I always seem to make a mistake at the end. But you do learn to be a much better typist when you have to redo your work enough times. And so that, so that was good. And then when I followed my, um, my partner out to Alberta, I had been told by unemployment that I had to apply for work. And I thought, I just want the summer off. You know, like I haven't, I'd been working part-time jobs since I was 12. And I was like, I just, you know, maybe I could just take the summer and go to the beach. And, uh, and it would be so wonderful. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to have a whole summer, but unemployment had rules and they wanted us to Mm -hmm. apply, you know, prove you were applying for work. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to apply for work that I'm not qualified for, you know, (laughs) and that'll give me the opportunity to be able to present, you know, very strategic in the way I think. uh, So I thought, well, I'll I'll apply for um, an airline position. And I was hired in two weeks and I was hired to do baggage (laughs) claims. And, and they were just changing over the uniforms. And so they wanted somebody who could come in and change over the uniforms and then do baggage claim. Cause obviously, you know, being a good typist, I had, had some skills in being able to fill in paperwork. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, it makes me a little money. And then they told me about the flight benefits and I was like, okay, well, yeah, that if I get flight benefits. (laughs) So, so I did that for five years and uh, and then I left that position kind of around the same time that that my marriage fell apart, and I went to uh, I went back to healthcare. So, so let's 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 just explore that a little bit. Flight benefits. Yeah. So, well, what you know, were the flight benefits, and did yeah. you use them extensively? Oh my gosh, I wish that I had used them extensively. But they had this little they had this little clause in the contract that said if you were, if you didn't show up for work for your shift, it was grounds for dismissal. So it was like, but my parents, they used them extensively. Um, you know, they'd never really flown anywhere. And suddenly here I was, you know, giving gifting them these these flight passes. And you could fly, um, you could fly standby. And there were lots of flights to choose from. But you could fly standby at really the cost of taxes. And and that was so great for my parents. And so they got to travel all over the place because they had more flexibility in terms of being able to book days off. But I remember my father once saying to me, he'd come back from, I think they went to England and he'd come back and he'd been on, you know, eight or nine different countries already that year. And one of the guys that was working with him said, did you guys win the lottery or something? He goes, oh, way better. My daughter works for the (laughs) air. And I think they literally cried the day that I left. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain there were tears the day that I left. Did they give you a hard time for leaving? Yeah. Like, why would you leave such a great job? Well, I'm glad that you were really enjoying it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah. And and then I went, I went to healthcare again, and I went and I got a job at, at the hospital. And... It was it was good, but it was also the same time that the premier of the province had done a lot of health was doing a lot of healthcare cuts, and so it became really cutthroat. Um, it was a really challenging place to work, and people were, you know, they were trying to undermine one another's performance in order to secure their own positions because there was just so much of the money being funneled out in order to pay the bills. Bit older, 
It was, it was, backstabbing. Yeah, 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 lots of backstabbing and very <laughs> stressful and quite a toxic work environment. And so, you know, my, my mom had, was, I don't think I mentioned my mom was a nurse and, uh, so was and it my the dad was, thing? Yeah, yeah. So I just kind of the following N- my parents. N- <laughs> well, well the, the NHS over here is um, there's an awful lot of toxic management, which is why yeah. a lot of people leave the NHS. Leave in droves. Yeah, so yeah. so I shot my resume, which I think many people do when they're working in toxic environments. And you really have to decide how, how fiercely independent you're going to be. Um, because there's just, I think there are a lot of us who feel helpless, that we, we feel almost trapped in careers. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if something is going really poorly or, or just, you know, you're, you're staying awake every single night, freaking out or stressing out about the, the work that you're doing and having to go to work. If you're getting up in the morning and kind of thinking, man, who's on the shift? Do I have to work today? You know, can I take a day off? It's probably time to shop your resume. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Life is yeah. <laughs> so I, I shot my resume and um, I secured a job in law enforcement following two parents. And I became a municipal officer and started doing traffic enforcement and bylaw enforcement and a lot of that kind of work that um, was, again, back to conflict, baggage claims, toxic workplace, and now, um, you know, in, into law enforcement where the, the only people you deal with are in conflict. <laughs> and so I became a peace officer there and saw the underbelly of, of society and I really enjoyed that work for a long time. So it was different every single day. It had lots of variety. And there was just this, this sense that I was making a difference. Of course, they mm. beat that out of you really quickly in about five years. <laughs> <laughs> so so were you working in an office just processing um No, no, I was a uniform. I was a uniform oh, officer. Was that right? mm-hmm. Yeah. Jump, I was jump in, a, in a squad car and going out nicking yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> And so great. And again, my secretarial work came in handy because they took all the stenos away with a budget cut. And so we were responsible for doing our own paperwork. (laughs) So, you know, know, back back to that, you know, landing on something. Get my words out very quick and then you can get back out and nick somebody else. (laughs) Exactly. And and, and I really did like it. And I I rose through the ranks there pretty quickly. And I became the president of the Law Enforcement Association and it was just a really, it was a really great time for a while. And then I, mm. you know, I, I started to realize I was burning out. Um, it was getting to be pretty stressful, although I had a lot of fun along the way. And if you don't mm. mind, I'm happy to share a couple of the stories. But um, mm. I, I got injured on the job in, De- in December of 97. And I had gone to a call and a, a, a guard dog uh, was at this was at this location and I didn't realize it was a guard dog and he didn't realize I was trying to help him, but he was a senior guard dog. He's a St. Bernard. He was quite huge and quite filthy. He had a seatbelt for a collar. And I was trying to check him to see if he had any tags. And as I started to pull my arm away, he latched on and lifted me right up off the ground and shook me and did all kinds of massive damage to my arm. And so I was then put on light duties 
And the interesting thing when you have a government job is, you know, no one ever just sends you home to wait it out like they did with the pandemic, but they, mm. they want you to do light duties, but I couldn't type. So the only thing they could do is put me on the phone. And I believe sarcasm is a gift that should be shared openly with as many people as possible. <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I remember taking the first call is February and I took this call and it was snowing very, very heavily. And this gentleman on the other line said, officer, will you, can you tell me when it'll stop snowing? So I need to get to Revelstoke, which was across the, the Rocky mountains. And I said, well, one moment, let me put you on hold and I'll get God on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> and my boss it could just hear him in the background. He was like, you did not just say that. And I said, well, you know, it's all in the delivery. <laughs> he said, well, the guy's not going to hold. And I said, well, the red light begs to differ. And he said, well, how long are you going to make him hold? And I said, well, until I get God on the other line. And I got this, you know, that sound that people make when they're intensely frustrated with you. And it just kind of sounds like, <sighs> and I'm like, okay. So I looked up the weather. And then I got him back on the line and I said, hey, you know, it looks like the, the radar shows that the weather's going to lift here in another couple of hours. I'd give it another hour past that for the, the plows to get out and clear the highway. And then you should be good to go. Just drive according to conditions. And I hung up the phone and he just shook his head and just said, like, this cannot continue. <laughs> and like this just answering the phone and I'm like, giddy up, you know, I, maybe I'm going to get that summer off as, it, as I'd always hoped for. And he said, he said, take a course. I want you to take a course. And I'm like, oh, does it have to be work related? Can it be any course? And he said, just pick a course. <laughs> so I took a look and I said, oh, Lifeguard. I want to. Yeah. Lifeguard on the beach. <laughs> yeah. Well, close. I said, I want to take hypnosis. And he said, what? And I said, well, you said any course. <laughs> Starting in a couple of weeks. And so, and I had no idea at the time how, how invaluable that training would be. And um, they were doing a pilot with the RCMP, the Calgary City Police, and the Edmonton City Police. We're all amalgamating their training branch. And they were going to see if they could use guided imagery to enhance performance for new recruits, reduce the fear. And, but I started to learn a lot in that class about human behavior. And that class led to another class in neurolinguistics. And then that class led to another class in crisis negotiating. And then that class led to mediation <laughs> and conflict resolution. And it was like this, this whole world opened up for me because I started to realize how valuable knowing how human behavior is structured and how to communicate to it could benefit so many people in my line of work. And so then I created a course while I was still rehabbing. I created a course called Influencing with Integrity. And I started to teach all of those officers who were writing a desk because they had so many complaints about their bad attitudes. And, you know, so if you had too many complaints about bad attitude, they kind of brought you away from, from your service work and put you on the desk. And I said, I, if you give me five days, I can get you back in the field and I'll teach you some things. And so I started teaching that course. And that was kind of the beginning of me in this training, um, speaking and training world. And then that led to, you know, 
working for the Justice Institute and doing a ton of training in the post-secondary environment around the things that I had learned because I had so much experience behind the curtain. I understood what was getting in the way. And I had so much insight into managing conflict, but I'm also a team player. And so I always want to help the team kind of become better, you know, more cohesive, less unnecessary conflict and stress that happens on teams all the time where we're the egos get in the way and to really help people have fun again. You know, if we were if we were back doing good work and really functioning in a in a highly productive way that it would benefit everyone. You know, you should, you're going to spend a lot of hours at work. You should at least have fun doing it or at least feel like it's a, a valuable exchange of time. Yeah. I'm fully beyond that. Um, I have this, this thing about work. I mean, I don't work any longer other than doing this stuff because um, I'm retired. But yeah. always, always, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, find something else that you are oh going to enjoy doing. You know, I once once heard a speaker say, (laughs) you know, I heard a speaker once say, you are, when you feel that you're not enjoying your work, remember that you are standing in somebody else's dream job. And that has really been a compass for me in terms of, you know, I I think some of us are just not brave enough to, to, to leave a really safe job with pension and benefits and, and, and risk all of that for something that may or may not work out. And um, I think that's the biggest challenge. And I, but, but understand that if you're not enjoying your work, neither are the people you're interacting with, because you're bringing that level of bitterness and anxiety yeah. and stress and anger, you know, impatience level to your job. And mm-hmm. so every person you touch now is impacted in, in a negative way, a caustic way, because of your unhappiness. And, you know, so, so I think that we have some responsibility to fix that and, and either reinvest in the work that we're doing in a new way or completely leave it and, and resurrect ourselves some other strategy. We just don't. You know, we don't have the time to sit around and hate our lives, and Absolutely. and then right, like, like, and and then blame Life. others for that. Life yeah. is far too short to muck about with it. Oh, way too <laughs> if, short. If, you, if you're not enjoying yeah. life, if you if you if your cup's not half full to overflowing, then you're doing something wrong. Just do something else for heaven's sakes, you know, spice it up. If you can't leave that job and some people can't, I I, I understand, you know, I, I was a single mom before I married an an incredible human and uh, you know, I'll be married to him for 28 years this year. I mean, he's, and he's just been fantastic in my life, a really great cheerleader and a supporter. And he does in fairness, let me, um, gives me the safety net when I say let, not like gives me permission, but yeah. that he he pays the bills so I can, right? So I can explore other opportunities. And and vice versa, you know, I look after I looked after him for a lot of years while he was looking to to land somewhere. So, you know, it's that that nice partnership that I think I was always looking for that I had with my twin sister. Mm. But you know, I I I think that we need to fiercely guard our mental health in a way that that we need to become ambassadors for our own lives and 
I think a lot of us are so accustomed, especially lately, to outsourcing decision making. You know, we we outsource the the we we wait for somebody else to give us permission, or we wait for someone else to tell us what to do, or we wait for that moment. Well, we'll we'll know. How will you know? You know, and so I built my business on the side, and I suppose I did kind of know the day that my boss walked in and said, "You still work here," and uh, and I knew that was probably close to needing to make a choice. <laughs> and, then, and then I I chose the career that I thought um, was was good, kind of keeping me excited and passionate, and and so my professional speaking business started, and it was so. Fabulous. I mean, I, I had so many contracts on the books and I was traveling to new countries and it was way more fun than I was, you know, when I thought that I, in my twenties, it was going to be amazing in those five-star hotels and restaurants, but, but it was me now I was doing things and I was contributing and there was just something, there's something immensely rewarding about creating your own path. And, mm. you know, the kids had grown up and I, I didn't have that same sense of urgency to keep the roof over our heads and, you know, food on the table. And so it, it just became this, this really great opportunity that has led to so many other wonderful opportunities. And then, you know, I can remember being trapped in an airport, you know, people say, oh, I'd love to live, you know, I'd, I'd carry your bags. No, you wouldn't. It's immensely boring. <laughs> Hotels and, and cabs, they all look the same, regardless of which country you're in. And the menu or room service is exactly the same in every hotel. You know, like, it's just not exactly the same. I think it can vary quite a lot from hotel to hotel. I mean, some <laughs> hotels are absolutely dire, oh, and some oh. are, are way off the scale. <laughs> you know, I so did see one. I stayed one time where it was three days before I got food. So I completely <laughs> agree with you. But you know, for the Quite most kind of part, diet. yeah, for the most part, it's you know, it's rubber chicken at a conference hall and. You know, and, and some places are great and, and you remember them. You know, I, I yeah. spoke in Cape Town, South Africa, and and yeah, the food was and the and the service. I mean, it ruined me forever. You feel like everything gets measured against that level of, of customer service. But <laughs> yeah. So let's I, let's explore what you're doing now then. Let's let's have a look at um so we, we've kind of covered how you kind of moved yeah. into to what you're doing now. So so let's 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 look at what you're doing now. Yeah, what am I doing now? I'm doing a little bit of dabbling. No, I'm kidding. I am uh you know I, I'm now teaching the things that I learned the hard way. And so I'm I act as a consultant as a conflict resolution specialist and I go into organizations that are that are forward facing so service oriented. Um, you know, municipal government, healthcare, any of those kind of where you can't I always say I help individual, I help organizations that can't fire their clients, right? <laughs> like if you can't <laughs> fire your client, you probably need to learn how to interface with them better. Yeah. And you know, so I, I I certainly am helping teams with around civility and respect in the workplace, and. Uh, communication. So how do we get better at our communication? And it's changing so fast all the time from digital to, to written to in-person. And so just really helping people refine those skills because I've been behind the curtain. So I understand the, the frustrations and the limitations and the boundaries that they have to contain themselves within. 
And so that's, that's really great. And then I started um, in about 2010, I want to say about 2010, I started writing books. And my thought around that was that people were asking me to come and speak at conferences. And if I'm at a conference, if I'm consulting, you get more access to me. And so you learn the skills over time. But if, um, if I'm just speaking at a conference, people wanted a takeaway, you know, they wanted something that would remind them. And so I started writing those books, but then I was stuck in the Chicago O'Hare airport on a a couple of canceled flights due to a snowstorm. And I was tired of reading self-help and I was tired of the homework and the lesson plan and the lecture. And I thought, I'm going to write a book I want to read. And when I'm tired, you know, it would still accidentally teach me something, but I want to write it from the perspective of getting people caught up in a story. And I think stories have this really wonderful quality about them that magnetize information. And we we kind of drop our critical, uh, self-loathing, self-doubting kind of thought process. And we get hooked into a story. And they're memorable. They're sticky. We remember them. And so we learn lessons. I think we learn things better when we, when we couch them in a story, when we connect mm-hmm. through stories. And so I started including more stories in my platform speaking, but I also started writing suspense novels. And it's, you know, so interesting. You have a protagonist who was a former peace officer and, you know, has learned all these lessons because we write what we know. And so that first series has this female protagonist who's, you know, good on intuition and gut feel and not necessarily super sharp in the investigative skills but really just has a sense about knowing when somebody's lying. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote that series and I was just going to write one. I just wanted to prove to myself I could do it. And a bit like everything else that I've done, just try it on for a while. And if I like it, do more (laughs) of it. And uh, so I started writing that one. Then I wrote a new one. Uh, Now I'm writing a second series, which is a, a male protagonist's, but more investigative. So now kind of the more mature, the more grown up version of the uh, oh. former officer who has those experiences and that education and more knowledge and is more savvy in terms of the investigative process. And so that's been really fun, you know, kind of marrying them up, but helping people understand human behavior by being caught up in the story. And so that's been mm. a really great exploration. And I'm still, you know, I'm obviously COVID affected all of us. So I started narrating my own books and so now I, I was going to come on to that. So, so how did um, the, the sort of the lockdowns and all the rest of it impact your business? Because I guess you're working for yourself mm-hmm. by this time. Yeah. So, and in fact, next year I'll be 20 years in this business, which is almost unheard of, it, particularly for me. But in this industry, it's, it's a tough one to sustain. Uh, you're a solopreneur. You have to know everything. But yeah, I, I had I was having a great year. Uh, t- I, 2020 was going to be my best year since moving to the Okanagan. And um, I was excited for what was on the books and excited. I was going speaking in Portugal and I was going to Barcelona and I was just really, you know, I was pretty pumped with the, the mm. wonderful array of work that I was getting to do. And I came back from working for the wildfire service and the phone started ringing and it was all the cancellations and everything just started like dominoes falling. And 
thankfully for me, I had been already coaching because we'd moved to the Okanagan in the end of 2015. I'd already built, I had such a business in, in the other province that I had already moved a lot of that work, my consulting work online. And so when it fell, I was able to sustain the virtual portion of my one-to-one work, but the one-to-many work went to zero, you know, and, and I probably lost $300,000 just in 2020 that, from what was on the books. And yeah. that, that was a big impact, you know, and a, a big hit to the ego. And, you know, what, do you, what am I going to do now? And of course, at the beginning, you thought, well, we're only going to be shut down for two weeks. And uh, that's what they told everybody. Three weeks to flatten the curve. (laughs) Right. And then three years later. (laughs) And and I I would say we're we're still trying to come back from that. You know, there's a lot of of the big conferences have had had to downsize. And and it's a pretty competitive cutthroat market out there right now. It feels a lot like those days Mm. in healthcare when when the market was being cut because everybody's trying to get back to work. And so they're saying horrible things about each other which helps no one. Well, not everybody's trying to get back to work. I think there's an awful lot of people quite happy to work from home and work from home, yeah. So uh, how productive they are is is, contentious at the best I have a theory about that. I have a theory about that, um, Tim. You know, if you were productive before, you're probably very productive at home. And, yeah. but if you were a person who was surfing the net and watching Facebook and playing Candy Crush while you were at work and just trying to look busy, then you're doing the same yeah. thing when you're at home. So, you know, yeah. I, I've been working from home since 2004 and I really am grateful for my six second commute. You know, I, I grab a coffee and if I've got people on virtually or a virtual conference, I love that I can take a break and just go get something to eat, or I can take the dogs for a walk midday, but I'm also fiercely driven. And, and I know that Mm. I'm ambitious and I'm driven and I'm organized and I'm productive and I don't have small children at home. And I think, you know, small children really impact how you regulate. I think the biggest challenge today for a lot of leaders is they don't know how to lead a remote team. And so, you know, there's this, it's a new way of thinking. And, and so they want to get everybody back to work and going down the lane that's familiar. And I think that familiar can be also very boring and, and lacks the innovation that's needed for us to move Mm. into the next age. I mean, we're moving into an age, we're in the age of disruption and we're moving into the AI age, you know, where artificial intelligence is going to run the world a lot more so Mm. than it has been. We got to learn how leaders have to step up and and take some training and invest. I mean, I invested in a lot of my training just personally. And I think we have to get back to investing in ourselves again and say, if I'm going to compete, if I'm going to participate, not even compete, but participate, I'm going to have to get good at things. I, I can no longer say, well, I don't know how to check my phone or I don't know how to be on Zoom or I, I don't know how to do these things. During COVID, I taught my 100-year-old grandmother how to be on FaceTime and with an iPad. And, you know, she's 100. If, you know, if you're younger than that, there are no excuses. None at all. (laughs) (laughs) So bring us right up to date. Right up to date. What what are you up to nowadays? I'm writing. 
I'm uh, about to release my third book in the Declan Kilgary series called Masterclass because everyone on social media is running a masterclass. So I thought that would be a great thing to write about. And uh, so it's suspense still, cozy suspense, but but he's the adjunct professor <laughs> teaching <laughs> teaching criminology. And um, so that's been really fun. So that's releasing. I just released um, in December, I released a new book on fra- called Fractures which is a book on narcissism, gaslighting, and entitlement inside families. Because I think it's one thing to teach people how to navigate that in the workplace, but if you never have an escape from it, it's a very different mm-hmm. game. And so I, I wrote that book to really help people recognize what's happening to them. Because I think when you are surrounded by toxic behavior in your family, it's, it's hard to distinguish what's real and what's not real. And, and to know, you know, sometimes I think we blame ourselves inside families and we think, what am I doing to cause this? And so just recognizing what, what some of those symptomatologies are and, mm-hmm. and then what you can do with that information. So that book came out in December. I'm getting back to work a little bit, which is wonderful. I'm starting to go, mm. get back on stages again and, and realizing, cause it's funny, you know, after three years, I was really wondering if that's maybe it was time for a new career change again. And, uh, but then I got back on the stage and I realized I love, I mean, I absolutely love helping people and it's still a a big part of my DNA is to contribute and to connect and to help people realize that a lot of the, the stress and the tension and the conflicts in their lives are unnecessary and that they, in some small ways can shift how much of it is consuming their hours and, and manage to navigate it a little little bit more resourcefully. So I'm teaching civility a lot. That seems to, since COVID, civility is a hot topic on teams. Mm-hmm. It's it's really become this place where there's so much burnout and so much frustration and so much resentment. Impatience levels are so high. People are are vibrating, customers are vibrating at a really, you know, there's not a lot of white space anymore. So I mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot of that work just really how do you how do you navigate that level of intensity? And so that's, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, to be able to help where I can in terms of people who have no escape from it. Um, and I'm doing a lot of work one-on-one with people who have met me at different things and they're coming back and saying, I need some help. Um, I'm at a place now where, where the conflicts are so high. So I'm doing lots of leadership communication coaching and couple of the uh, local colleges have picked me up to do some adjunct work and around human behavior. And, you know, I'm, I'm still taking courses all through COVID. I studied neuroplasticity. You know, other people watch Netflix. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I took classes, you know, one cannot learn it enough. And then last this, I just finished um, a certification course in con, um, digital content writing. So that's been really fun as well. Yeah. Ah, brilliant. So that's where you are now, they said. Busy brain. So, <laughs> yeah, because you are mischief. <laughs> well, that and, and my two golden retrievers, you've probably seen wandering back and forth going, yeah. are, are we going outside? Like, is there a moment? <laughs> um. <laughs> so, Faith, that's been fascinating. Really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's easy to talk about ourselves, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Even the things we don't want to tell. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like I said, something that I try and perfect is to to eke out little nuggets of information people don't really talk about. That's right. It's more interesting. I I truly believe in, you know, connection over content sometimes and stories help us connect. So I'm, you know, I'm very, very pleased with what you're doing. I'm looking forward to following your podcasts and uh, catching up on what other people's lives are about. You know, it's such a nice piece to hear who people are, not just what they do. Yeah, that's terrific. So thank you once again. Thanks so much, Tim, for having me. The Tim Hill Podcasts, ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.